Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Well, I'm excited to return to a bit of our readings from Franz Hartmann's Magic White and Black, which is a wonderful piece of history that really shows some of the interesting perceptions a doctor, physician, living at the end of the 19th century had, who was not only a founder of the OTO, but an influential thinker in his time. So here we go. Obviously, use discretion and a bit of historical perception when you are considering some of the things that he said and how they are often more representative of the 19th century than what we should necessarily take as good advice and insight today. That said, what's fascinating about a text like this is the place where it does have insights that we consider fascinating still today, over a hundred years later. Consciousness. Chapter 7. I am that I am. The Bible. Everything in the universe is a manifestation of mind, for the universe itself is an expression of eternal wisdom. Everything, therefore, is mind, possessing consciousness in the absolute and being capable of manifesting relative consciousness. Consciousness in the absolute means unconsciousness in relation to things. Absolute self-consciousness means the full realization of one's own existence, a godlike state of self-existence independent of any external object a state of eternal life within one's own light. Self-consciousness means the realization of one's own existence independent of other things, while relative consciousness means the realization of one's own existence with reference to the objects of one's perception. Unconsciousness in the absolute is non-existence, a term without meaning, while relative consciousness means ignorance in regard to that of which one does not know that it exists. Consciousness means knowledge and life. Unconsciousness is ignorance and death. An imperfect knowledge is a state of imperfect consciousness in relation to the object of knowledge. The highest possible state of consciousness is the full realization of the truth. Consciousness means existence. Non-consciousness is non-existence, nothing. Self-consciousness is self-existent, independent of any object. Relative existence is the consciousness of the relation between subject and object. A thing has no existence relatively to ourselves before we become conscious of its existence. A person who does not realize his own existence is unconscious, and for the time being, to all practical purposes, as far as he himself is concerned, dead. A state of existence is incomprehensible unless it is experienced and realized. And it begins to be from the moment that it is realized. If a person were the legal possessor of millions of money and did not know it, he would have no means to dispose of it or enjoy it. A man may be present at the delivery of the most eloquent speech, and unless he hears what is said, that speech will have no existence for him. Every man is endowed with reason and conscience, but if he never listens to its voice, the relation between him and his conscience will cease to exist, and it will die for him in proportion as he loses the power to hear it. 
Symbols have a meaning to him who understands their meaning, but for the ignorant nothing but the forms which he sees and feels exist. Their meaning has no existence for him. A man may be alive and conscious in relation to one thing, and dead and unconscious relatively to another. One set of his faculties may be active and conscious, while another set may be unconscious and its activity suspended. A person who listens attentively to music may be conscious of nothing but sound. One who is rapt in the admiration of form is only conscious of seeing. Another who suffers from pain may be conscious of nothing but the relation that exists between him and the sensation of pain. A man absorbed in thought may believe himself alone in the midst of a crowd. He may be threatened by destruction and be unconscious of the danger. He may have the strength of a lion, and it will avail him nothing unless he becomes conscious of it. He cannot be immortal unless he becomes conscious of immortal life. The more a person learns to realize the true state of his existence, the more he will become conscious of his existence. If he does not realize his true position, illusions will be the result. If he fully knows himself and his surroundings, he will be conscious of his own powers. He will know how to exercise them and become strong. To become conscious of the existence of a thing is to perceive it. To perceive it means to enter into relation with it and to feel the existence of that relation. Life itself is a manifestation of consciousness. Motion is a manifestation of life. A thing without consciousness of any kind is unthinkable and could not exist. Even the most immovable mountains are states of mind, corporified eternal thoughts, and as such they are expressions of consciousness. They feel the power of gravitation and speak through the mouth of the echo. The body of our Mother Earth, although devoid of self-consciousness and intellectual reasoning, is nevertheless conscious of the presence of the sun, turning with incredible velocity around its axis. Each of its parts strive to receive the full influence of his light, and after receiving his blessing gives way to another part to be blessed likewise. Stars and planets, worlds and molecules, are attracted toward each other, all by the action of eternal love, which could produce no reaction on absolute consciousness if such a thing could exist. Absolute self-consciousness belongs only to God. He alone is self-existent and independent of any outside conditions. He is self-sufficient and needs nothing to excite consciousness or knowledge in him. Man's self-consciousness, insofar as the realization of a divine presence has not awakened within him, is as much an illusion of his imaginary self-existence because it is then not his true real I, but nature that has become self-conscious in him, producing that ever-changing and impermanent sense of the ego, which appears from hour to hour and from day to day, chameleon-like under different attributes." This artificially produced ego is a mere nothing. And one proof of it is that the great majority of people continually require some stimulus to enable them to know that they exist. If they are alone and without pastime, they are miserable. If they are only in company with themselves, they are then in company with nothing. Without an amusement of some kind, they would become insane or die. But he, in whom the divine consciousness of his true inner self has awakened, 
will require no external stimulus to let him know that he lives. He may be shut up in a prison or in a tomb. He carries his own light with him. He cares little for the company of men if he is in company with his God. Man is an organism in which either God or nature, or the antithesis of God, the devil, may become self-conscious. If only nature is self-conscious in him, he has then no real life or consciousness of his own. It is absurd of him to speak of dying, because he has never yet come to life. If God has become self-conscious in him, he will be one with God, whose temple he is. If the self-consciousness of the devil resides in his house, then he is a personal devil for all practical purposes and intents. From the moment that man becomes relatively conscious of the existence of a spiritual power within his soul, he enters into relationship to that power, and he attains spiritual consciousness. But it may still be a long time until that power becomes fully alive and self-conscious in him. The vulgar have only the consciousness of the animal within themselves. It is the hog in one that is given to gluttony, the goat in another that is given to lewdness, the tiger in one that kills, the snake in another that stings by the power of calumny, the fox in another from which he receives his cunning. They are houses which the master has never inhabited, or which he has deserted, and which are filled with animals. It is the animals that are living and acting in them. The persons themselves have no life. As everything that exists is of a threefold nature, so there are three modes of perception. The physical perception, the perception of the soul, and the spiritual perception. The former reaches the surface of things, the second the soul, then the third into their innermost centers. To see is to think with the organ of sight. A thought sent to the surface of the object of perception will see only the surface. A thought becoming conscious in the center will see that which exists at the center. Everything that exists, exists within the universal mind, and nothing can exist beyond it, because the universal mind includes all, and there is no beyond. Perception is a faculty by which mind learns to know what is going on within itself. Man can know nothing but what exists within his own mind. Even the most ardent lover has never seen his beloved one. He merely sees the image which the form of the latter produces in his or her mind. If we pass through the streets of a city, the images of men and women pass review in our mind while their bodies meet our own. But for the images which they produce within our consciousness, we would know nothing about their existence." The images produced in the mind come to the consciousness whose seat is the brain. If man's consciousness were centered in some other part of his body, he would become conscious in that part of the sensations which he receives. He might, for instance, see with his stomach or hear with his fingers, as has been actually the case in some somnambulic states. From the relations existing between object and subject, physical senses came into existence. There could be no perception without resistance. If our bodies were perfectly transparent to light, we could not perceive the light because light cannot illuminate itself. The astral light penetrates our bodies, but we are not able to see it with our physical eyes. 
because the physical body offers no resistance to it. But when the physical body begins to sleep, the life retires from the outer into the inner man. The astral man may become conscious of the existence of that higher light and see it like beautiful stars or sheets of light resembling the electric light falling through a crystal globe. At the time when we fall asleep, consciousness gradually leaves its seat in the brain and merges into the consciousness of the inner man. It may then begin to realize another state of existence, and if a part of the consciousness still remain with the brain, the perception of the inner consciousness may come to the cognizance of the lower personal self. We may, therefore, in that half-conscious state, between sleeping and waking, when our consciousness is, so to say, oscillating between two states of existence, receive important revelations from the higher state and retain them in the memory of the external self. The more our consciousness merges in that higher state, the better we realize the higher existence, but the impressions upon our personal self will become dim and perhaps not be remembered. But as long as the greatest part of our consciousness is active within the material brain, the perceptions of the higher state will only be dim and mixed up with memories and sensations of the lower state of existence. The images will be confused. When the turmoil of external life ceases and the external senses come to rest, then is the time for the inner senses to become more active, and then the neophyte may enjoy communion with his master, the divine Adonai. Then may he receive lessons from the world of the spirit, and problems that were too difficult for him to be solved while his external senses were fully alive may now become clear to him in his sleep and even be remembered when he, quote, awakens again to external life. The tranquility of the outer senses facilitates the action of the inner senses. The tranquility of the outer senses facilitates the action of the inner senses. It is said of Socrates that he once stood for 18 hours immovable and absorbed in thought, but in the fully illuminated seer, the external and internal consciousness are as one. Jakob Burma was in a state of divine illumination for three weeks and followed during that time his occupation as a shoemaker. Life, sensation, perception, and consciousness may be withdrawn from the physical body and become active in the astral body of man. The astral man may then become conscious of his own existence independent of the physical body and develop his faculties of sense. He may then see sights which have no existence for the physical eye. He may hear sounds that the physical ear cannot hear. He may feel, taste, and smell things whose existence the physical senses cannot realize and which consequently have no existence to them. What an astonishing sight would meet the eyes of a mortal if the veil that mercifully hides the astral world from his sight were to be suddenly removed. He would see the space which he inhabits occupied by a different world, full of inhabitants, of whose existence he knew nothing. What before appeared to him dense and solid would now seem to be shadowy, and what seemed to him like airspace he would find peopled with life. All houses are haunted, but not all persons are equally able to see the ghosts that haunt them, because to perceive things on the astral plane requires the development of a sense adapted to such perceptions. 
Thoughts are ghosts, and only those that can see thoughts can see ghosts, unless the latter are sufficiently materialized to refract the light and become visible to the eye. Nor is it necessary that the person whose ghost haunts a house should have died. There are many living persons whose spirits haunt the houses which they formerly inhabited, each thought expressed with a certain intensity of will. Each curse and each blessing that comes from the heart gives birth to a spirit that may haunt a place, and even produce external and visible effects under certain conditions. We may feel the presence of an astral form without being able to see it, and be just as certain of its presence as if we did behold it with our eyes. For the sense of feeling is not less reliable than the sense of sight. The presence of a holy, high, and exalted idea that enters the mind fills it with a feeling of happiness, with an exhilarating influence whose vibrations may be perceived long after that thought has gone. Each human being may be looked upon as an unlimited sphere of consciousness with a visible center. Each resembles a living nebula, of which only the solid kernel is visible. Visible man is not all there is of man, but surrounded by an invisible mental atmosphere comparable to the pulp surrounding the seed in a fruit. But this light or atmosphere or pulp is the mind of man, an organized ocean of spiritual substance wherein all things exist. If man were conscious of his own greatness, he would know that within himself exists the sun and the moon and the starry sky and every object in space because his true self is God, and God is without limits. To see a thing is identical with feeling it with the mind. The mind of man extends through space and is therefore not merely the images of things we see, but the things themselves that exist within the periphery of our mind, however distant from the center of consciousness they may be. And if we were able to shift that center from one place to another within the sphere of the mind, we might in a moment of time approach to the object of our perception. If you throw a handful of sand into a quiet lake, does not every grain form a center of motion upon the surface, from whence proceed concentric waves in all directions? Can you tell where the realm of one such motion is limited, and do they not all move in the same lake? Likewise, each individual being constitutes a center of consciousness in the sea of eternity, whose ripples of thought extend into the depths of the infinite mind. As it is, the center of consciousness of normally constituted man is located in the brain, and, if the mind feels an object, the impressions have to travel all the way to the brain. If we look at a distant star, our mind is actually there and in contact with it, and if we could transfer our consciousness to that place of contact, we would be ourselves upon that star, and perceive the objects thereon as if we were standing personally upon its surface. If we were not able to feel with the mind, we would not be able to become conscious of the character of the things we see and whose qualities are invisible to us. But the individual spheres of beings enter and pervade each other and exchange their sensations like the circular rings produced if a handful of pebbles is thrown into a lake. Perception is passive imagination, because if we perceive an object, the relation which it bears to us comes to our consciousness without any active exertion on our part, 
but there is an act of perception or imagination by which we may enter into a relation with a distant object in space by a transfer of consciousness. By this power we may act upon a distant object if we succeed in forming a true image of it in our own consciousness. By concentrating our consciousness upon such an object, we become conscious in that place of the sphere of mind where that object exists. Instead of perceiving an already existing relation, we establish consciously a relation between such an object and ourselves. If I can form in my mind a true image of an absent person and cling to it with my will, I am then identified in my mind with that person and am actually with him or her. My real I is everywhere, and wherever I locate my consciousness, there am I consciously myself, all except in the physical form. How could I be nearer to a friend than to be in perfect harmony with his soul, and identified with him in his own consciousness? Consciousness is existence, and there are as many states of consciousness as there are states of existence. Every living being has a consciousness of its own. The result of its sensations and the state of its consciousness changes every moment of time as fast as the impressions which it receives change. Because its consciousness is the perception of the relation it bears to things, and as this relation changes, consciousness changes its character. If our whole attention is taken up by animal pleasure, we exist in an animal state of consciousness. If we are aware of the presence of spiritual principles, such as hope, faith, charity, justice, truth, etc., in their highest aspects, we live in our spiritual consciousness, and between the two extremes there are a great variety of gradations. Consciousness itself does not change, it only moves up and down on the scale of existence. There is only one kind of consciousness which never changes its form, because its relation to things never changes, it being in relation with nothing except with itself. It is the divine consciousness of existence, per se, the realization of the I am. It cannot change, because existence, per se, never changes. Its change would involve non-existence or the annihilation of all. When the absolute one life becomes relative in a form, the degree of its manifestation depends on the state of the activity of life expressed in the organization of its form. In a low organized form, there may be sensation, but there is no intelligence. An oyster has sensation and consciousness, but no intelligence and no power of discrimination. A man may have a great deal of intellect and no consciousness of the existence of spirituality, sublimity, justice, beauty, or truth. If these divine principles have become fully alive and self-conscious in him, then, and only then, is he in possession of divine wisdom. The lowest existences follow implicitly the laws of nature or of universal wisdom. They have no wisdom of their own. The highest spiritual beings follow their own wisdom, but their wisdom is identical with the universal law. The difference between the lowest beings and the highest ones is therefore that the lowest ones perform the will of God unconsciously and unknowingly, while the highest ones do the same thing knowingly and consciously. It is only the intermediary beings between the lowest and the highest who imagine that they are their own lawgivers and may do what they please. The muscular system exercises its habitual movements in the act of walking and eating, etc., without being especially guided by a superintending intellect like a clockwork that, after being 
once set in motion, continues to run. And a man who is in the habit of doing that which is right and just will act in accordance with the law of justice instinctively and without any consideration or doubt. Each state or existence has its own mode of perception, sensation, instinct, consciousness, and memory, and the activity of one may overpower and suppress that of the other. A person, being only conscious of the sensations created by some physical act, is at that time unconscious of spiritual attractions. One who is under the influence of chloroform may lose all his external sensations of pain, and yet be conscious of his surroundings. One in a state of trance may be fully awake on a higher plane of existence and entirely unconscious of what happens on the physical plane. The muscular system may be semi-conscious and overpower the intellect, or the conscious and intelligent brain may control the muscular system. A person may climb up to the most dizzying heights of a tower or a mountain peak, and if there is a rail or a staircase to afford him even an imaginary protection, he will not be very liable to become overpowered by the sense of danger. His intellect may be aware of danger, but reason teaches the unreasoning animal man, filling the muscular system with a sensation of security, and he will not be very liable to fall. But if you remove the protection, the sensation of danger presenting itself before the mind impresses the unreasoning animal instincts with the overpowering illusion of fear, and danger may become imminent. The body becomes conscious of the attraction of the chasm, the intellect too weak to guide the will to resist the tendency of the excited body to follow that attraction, and the person may fall. The unintelligent muscular system is conscious of nothing else but the attraction of earth. In it, the element of earth predominates, and unless it is upheld by the intellect and will, it seeks to act according to the impulse created in it by that attraction. The astral body, per se, is unintelligent, and unless infused with the intelligence coming from the higher principles, it follows the attractions of the astral plane. These attractions are the emotions created by desires, as the physical body, if unguided by reason, may fall and perish by the fall, so the astral body, following the attractions of love and hate, may refuse to obey the intelligent principle of man and seek its own destruction. The animal consciousness of man is that unreasoning brute instinct which impels him to seek for the gratification of his natural desires. Correctly speaking, there is no such thing as animal reasoning, animal intellect, animal consciousness, etc. Consciousness, reason, intelligence, etc. in the absolute have no qualifications. They are universal principles, that is to say, functions of the universal one life, manifesting themselves on various planes in mineral, vegetable, animal, human, astral, and transcendental forms. The condition of a person whose consciousness is no more illuminated by reason is seen in cases of emotional mania, and sometimes in cases of actual obsession. In such cases, the person will act entirely according to the impulses acting upon his lower consciousness, and when he recovers his reason, be entirely unconscious of his actions during that state. Such states manifest themselves in only one person, or they may simultaneously affect several persons, and even whole countries, becoming epidemic by the law of induction, as has been experienced in some wholesale obsessions occurring during the Middle Ages.
Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. They are often observed in cases of hysteria, may be witnessed at religious meetings, during theatrical performances, during the attack upon an enemy, or at any other occasion, where the passions of the multitude are excited, inducing them to acts of folly or bravery, and enabling people to perform acts which they would be neither willing nor able to perform if they were guided only by the calculations of their intellect. Merely imaginary self-consciousness exists when the thought and will are divided. We then live in our imagination, but the will is dormant and inactive. Only when will and thought become united and act as one, then will true self-consciousness become manifest. The self-conscious will, receiving its light from thought, is a god or a devil according to its tincture. In its full development, it is a power beyond the comprehension of normal man. It enables its possessor to blend his own consciousness with that of any other person, to enter into communication with any other person in any part of the world, although that other person may not become aware of his presence unless he has developed his own power of spiritual perception to a certain extent. If we steadily concentrate our thought upon a person or a place, the highest thought energies residing in the fifth principle of man will actually visit that place, because thought is not bound by the laws of gross matter regarding space and time, and we are able to think of a far-off place as quick as of one that is near. Our thoughts go to the desired locality, for that locality, however far it may be, is still within the sphere of mind. If we have been there before, or if there is something to attract us, it will not be difficult to find it. But under ordinary circumstances, our consciousness remains with the body. We may even realize our presence at the place which we visit, but on returning to our normal state we cannot remember it, because the semi-material principles of our soul, in which resides memory, have not been there to collect impressions and transfer them to the physical brain. But if our will has become one with our thought, so as to accompany the latter, then our consciousness may go with them, being projected there by the power of the will and illuminated by thought. We shall then visit the chosen place consciously and know what we are doing, and our astral elements may carry our memory back and impress them upon our physical brain. The reason why such things sometimes take place at the time of death and the conscious appearance of a dying person occurs at a distant place to visit a friend, is because at the time of dying the will becomes again free and unites with the thought of the person, thus forming a veritable spirit, a union of will and thought. It sometimes happens that the double of a sleeping person is attracted to a distant place, acting, however, like an automaton without intelligence. This simply shows that the will of the person was not set free. His thought was there, but not his conscious will. 
nor could the will leave the sleeping body of a person that has not become sufficiently spiritual, because the will is the life, and if it were to leave the form, the body would die. There are a great number of cases on record where, in consequence of a sudden and intense emotion, for instance, the desire to see a certain person, the will has become prominently active, and projecting itself from the physical body has rendered the thought of the person conscious and visible at a distance. In cases of homesickness, we find some approach to an instance of this. The person separated from home and friends, having an intense yearning to see his native place again, projects his thoughts and his unconscious will to that place. He lives, so to say, spiritually in that place, while his physical body vegetates in another. The life elements pass more and more to these astral elements at the expense of the life elements necessary to supply the wants of the physical body. There seem to be nothing particularly important the matter with the patient. He has a little fever, becomes weaker, and finally dies. That is to say, he goes where he desires to go, although his gradual going is imperceptible and unrecognizable to physical senses. Sometimes, in cases of sickness, a similar process takes place. When, from whatever cause, the union between the physical form and the astral body becomes weakened, the astral form may separate itself for a while or permanently from the physical form and follow a stronger attraction, and in such cases it may be seen by persons gifted with second sight. The symptoms of such a beginning of separation may often be observed in cases of severe sickness when the patient that has the sensation as if another person were lying in the same bed with him and as if that person were in some way connected with him and he would have to take care of the latter. As recovery takes place, the principles whose cohesion has been loosened become reunited, and that sensation disappears. A higher state of consciousness than that of the normal state is often observed in cases of trance and somnambulism. A lower state than the normal one is witnessed in cases of drunkenness or intoxication of some kind. A case is cited in Dr. Hammond's book on insanity, in which a servant, while in a state of intoxication, carried a package with which he had been entrusted to the wrong house. Having become sober, he could not remember the place, and the package was supposed to be lost. But after he got drunk again, he remembered the place. He went there and recovered the package. This goes to show that when he was drunk, he was another person than when he was sober. Man's individuality continually changes according to the conditions in which he exists, and as his consciousness changes, he becomes another individual, although he still retains the same outward form. Instead of getting drunk, a man may become full of the wine of the spirit. In that case, he may, while in that state, write down very high and exalted ideas, which he may not fully remember after his return to his normal state, and perhaps he may then not even understand his own writings. If a person is in the hypnotic state, subject to the will magnetizer, it is the consciousness of the latter which takes possession of the former and uses his mental organism as if it were his own. If a hypnotizer causes his subject to commit a crime, it is he who commits it through the instrumentality of the hypnotized. If a medium lies, it is the lying thoughts of him who consults the medium that are echoed back through the latter, nor could he be a genuine medium if he did not reflect lies as well as the truth. All men are mirrors. 
in which the world is reflected. All men are mirrors reflecting each other's thoughts and acting them out. Experience shows that there is not a day in the year that not some hypnotizer consciously or unconsciously commits a crime through another person. And while the real culprit goes scot-free, the weak-minded instrument is punished. Thousands of marriages are the outcome of hypnotization. Man exists as an individual only as long as he is in possession of divine reason. And this reason is not an attribute of the human form, but a function of the divine spirit which illuminates it. In the state of trance, the consciousness is entirely concentrated on the higher planes, and the mind may even forget the existence of the physical body. In the state of intoxication, the person may only be conscious of his animal existence and entirely unconscious of his higher self. A somnambule in the lucid condition looks upon her body as a being distinct from her own self, who is, to a certain extent, under her care. She speaks of that being in the third person, prescribes sometimes for it as a physician prescribes for his patient and often shows tastes, inclinations, and opinions entirely opposed to those which she possesses in her normal condition. Somnambules often give promises which they fulfill when they return to their normal condition, although when they awake they do not remember of ever having made any promise at all. If man's consciousness changes from one state to another, his tastes and inclinations change accordingly. While his thoughts revel in animal pleasures, the realm of the spirit will be closed to him, nor will he desire to enter it. If he has once attained the power to perceive the things of the spirit, animal pleasures, and the knowledge of which terrestrial science is proud, will appear absolutely worthless to him. Persons, while in a trance, may love another person intensely, because they are then capable to perceive his interior qualities, and they may detest him when they are in their normal condition, because they then merely behold his external attributes. This higher self, which often seems to care so little for the earthly troubles that vex and perplex the lower self, is the real man, who continues to live when the body of the person with which he is connected during life no longer exists. It is the individual which, through a long chain of reincarnations, has become connected with many personalities, extracting from each the elements which are worthy to be preserved, and assimilating them with his own. Only few persons mentioned in history have succeeded in uniting their personality with their own divine and impersonal. Such that have succeeded are the truly enlightened and require no more incarnations. The highest state of spiritual consciousness is the full and complete realization of divine truth. Even while physical consciousness is active, the consciousness of the higher principles may be so exalted as to render the body little conscious of pain. History speaks of men and women whose souls rejoiced while their earthly tabernacles were undergoing the tortures of the rack or were devoured by flames at the stake. Man leads essentially two lives one while he is fully awake, and another while he is fully asleep. Each has its own perceptions, consciousness, and experiences, but the experiences of that state called deep sleep are not remembered when we are fully awake. At the borderland, between sleep and waking, where the impressions of each state meet and mingle, is the realm of confused dreams, which are usually remembered and seldom contain any truth. 
This state is, however, favorable to receive impressions from the higher self, or to see the pictures existing in the astral light. In the former case, the higher self may use symbolical forms and allegorical images to convey ideas to the lower self and to give it admonitions, forebodings, and warnings in regard to future events. In the latter case, faces and forms of persons that previously occupied the room of the sleeper may be seen, or his mind may wander to scenes to which he is unconsciously attracted. There are, however, various kinds of dreams, and it would be wrong to deny that some of them may not be useful. The higher self may make use of the impressionability of the lower self during the time of half-conscious slumber to impress it with useful visions and warn it out of danger, and to teach it lessons which the lower self would not be able to understand while his physical senses are fully active and the voice of intuition drowned in the noise of the struggle produced by the contending emotions. Many a difficult problem has been solved during sleep, and the terrestrial world is not always without any reflex of the light from above." The mind of the sleeper during the sleep of the body may come into contact with other minds and pass through experiences which he does not remember when he awakes. Man, in his waking condition, often has experiences which he afterwards does not remember, but which he nevertheless enjoyed at the time when they occurred, and which at that time were real to him. Note. Man has not only a double consciousness, but he leads two lives which are separate and yet one. Each of these lives has its own experiences, and if while in one state we do not remember the experiences of the other state, this does not disprove the truth of our assertion. A man may live and undergo certain experiences in a certain place while his body is asleep, or unconscious, or half-conscious, in another place. And if the physical body returns to its normal state, it may or may not remember what happened to him while he was in the other state. But there are some exceptional cases in which the consciousness of both states may become blended, and then the person may remember where he had been and what he had been doing while in that other case. One such extraordinary case is mentioned in A.P. Sinnott's Incidents in the Life of Madame Blavatsky. Speaking of her sickness in Tiflis, Madame Blavatsky says that she had the sensation as if she were two different persons, one being the Madame Blavatsky whose body was lying sick in bed, the other person an entirely different and superior being. Quote, when I was in my lower state, she says, I knew who that other person was and what she or he had been doing. But when I was that other being myself, I did not know or care who was that Madame Blavatsky. End quote. It is therefore very well possible that Madame Blavatsky's transcendental ego, with all its consciousness, faculties, and powers of perception, in fact, her real self, was consciously and really undergoing certain mysterious experiences in Tibet, while the physical instrument, which we call Madame Blavatsky, was sick in Tiflis. But such an explanation will become incomprehensible to those persons who imagine the physical body of a person to be the whole of his person, and his physical form to be his own real self. 
only when the relations existing between the higher and the lower self will be fully understood by our would-be philosophers will their eyes become open to a realization of the truth that man's phenomenal terrestrial self is nothing else but a temporary illusion, a bundle of ever-changing powers and principles held together by the power of the divine spirit, and endowed by the latter with the faculty to perceive, to think, to will, and to remember, a fleeting cloud of living matter, illuminated for the time being by the light of the spirit, a mere instrument through which impersonal forces act, while the real self of man exists in another region of thought, and is known only to those who are passing through the process of spiritual regeneration. A mixture of the various states of sensation and perceptions produces the normal consciousness of man. Man feels in himself at least two sets of attractions that come to his consciousness, the earthly and the fiery elements. One set drags him down to earth and makes him cling with a firm grasp to material necessities and enjoyments. The other set, lifting him up into the region of the unknown, makes him forget the allurements of matter, and by bringing him nearer to the realm of the abstract ideas of the good, the true, and the beautiful, gives him satisfaction and happiness. The greatest poets and philosophers have recognized this fact of double consciousness, or the two poles of one, and between those two poles ebbs and floods the normal consciousness of the average human being. Goethe expresses this in his Faust, in about the following terms, Two souls, alas, are conscious in my breast. Each from the other tries to separate. One clings to earth, attracted by desire, the other rises upward. One attraction arises from spirit, another from matter. By the power of reason, man is enabled to choose which way he will follow. And by the power of his will, he is enabled to follow his choice. He may concentrate his consciousness entirely on the lower plane, and sinking into sensuality, become entirely unconscious of the existence of the higher aspirations. Or he may live entirely in the higher planes of thought and feeling, grow to realize fully the beauties, realities, and truths of the spirit, and become dead to the attractions of matter. A self-centered and narrow-minded man may have his consciousness narrowed down to a small sphere. A great and liberal mind may expand it without any limits, until the whole of space will appear to him to be filled with his own consciousness, and his power of perception will enable him to penetrate all the mysteries in nature. Few may be able to reach such a state, and few will be able to comprehend its possibility, but there have been men who, on the threshold of nirvana, were able to concentrate the powers of their minds in centers beyond the attractions of earth, and while their physical bodies continue to live on this planet, the divine self, leaving its human form, would consciously roam through the interplanetary spaces and see the wonders of the material and spiritual worlds. This is the highest form of adeptship, attainable on earth, and to him who accomplishes it, the mysteries of the universe will be like an open book. Every man and woman, however, can feel within their souls the presence of the divine spirit, even if they cannot yet see its light. This is the beginning of that true spiritual consciousness to which we should cling at all times, and which finds its expression in the adoration of the highest good. 
Still, such states are yet far from spiritual self-consciousness, which is a full realization of individual existence within the spiritual realm, and as such is known only too few. Even the most devout worshipper, as long as the divine spirit has not awakened within his soul, will merely feel the beauties of the spiritual realm in the same sense as a blind man may enjoy the warm sun rays of the sunshine without being able to see the light. Only when the process of spiritual regeneration has fairly begun will he be able to see the sun of glory within his own soul and the elusive self-consciousness of his former state, which caused him to believe that he was a permanent being, will be transformed into that real self-conscious state in which he becomes self-luminous in the light of the truth, a state in which man actually knows that he exists as an eternal, self-existent, and immortal power in God. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.